We are continuing to, we're going to pick up where we left off last time, which actually, if you have your sheet from last week, you will be there in lesson um, seven, uh, midway through lesson seven, then we'll pick into lesson eight, which is the, uh, I think the printouts I had for you. That's why I, did I print out what I have, lesson seven or eight? What did I print out for you? Eight, right? Yeah. That's what I thought. How, seven? Well, I know we didn't finish seven. We're going to finish seven, and then we'll go into eight if we get to it. So, how are we doing on this? Is that okay? Oh, we're good. Wow. First, chance, first try. Good job, Peter. Whoever else helped. Thank you. Uh, where we left off was the ordinances of the church. We spent a lot of time last time talking about the purpose of the church, the function of the church, and the people within the church, uh, the parts that we all play within the church working to do the mission of the church and how every different person is a member within the church body. Remember we talked about that? We got through all that information. We got through all that stuff. We talked about the working of the church, how the foot can't say to the eye. Uh, and my, my son, Nelson, when I got home that night, he put his feet up on one of the chairs and said, hey, Dad, look, I'm looking at you because I have eyeballs on my toes. And, and if you weren't here, uh, I was just saying how God designed us to work a certain way. And so, uh, yes, yeah, so that is, that is how God designed us. The church is the same way. They are different people within the church. And so we have two ordinances of the local church, and these two are very important. Now, I gave out some verses, and I, I know I gave out verses last week. If I gave out verses last week, those verses are null and void. Those are gone. I gave out new verses this week. So the new uh, smaller pieces of paper, if you have Matthew 28, 19, and 20, these are the last words that Jesus spoke to his disciples before ascending into heaven. We see this also played out in Acts chapter 1, but we're going to read it out of Matthew chapter 28, verses 19 and 20. Who can read that for us? Who has that? Okay, yes, sir. So, what did Jesus command his disciples to do? What was their, their job description as his disciples? Talk to me. Okay, okay so go therefore, and, and really the way this is grammatically, it's almost like while you're going, if you can say it that way, it's going, go therefore, and make disciples. Go everywhere, right? Making disciples is also translated by some as teach, right? But the idea really is to make a disciple. Of whom? Okay, that's a really hard question. Yes, make a disciple of Christ, but who are the ones who are to be made disciples? There it is. Make disciples of all nations. Now, we could spend oh, so much time talking about how amazing that is, that Jesus comes as a Jewish Messiah in a Jewish family to a Jewish nation being rejected by the Jewish people, dies on a cross, a Roman cross, is buried, rises again, and then he calls his disciples to go be witnesses of him in the world of all the nations, really fulfilling the responsibility that Israel had as an Old Testament nation, to be a light to the Gentiles, Jesus is telling, now you go to all the nations and make disciples of all the nations. And how do you do that? What are the process? What's the process of making disciples in this passage? Make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them. Okay, so we're going to talk about what is baptism. Bapti this is the first ordinance that we're going to talk about here in the, in, in, of the church. Baptizing is a very important part. We have a baptistry. I talked to somebody the other day who was kind of new here. And they said, do you have a baptistry? You're a Baptist church. Where's your baptistry? Those of us who've been here a long time, we know the baptistry is under the choir loft where the trap door is. In case they sing poorly, we can pull the plug and they go down in the water. We all know all about that. We all know all about the alligators that infest our baptistry. But, but that, is, that is new information to some folks. They didn't know. And that's a good question because as Baptists, we believe in baptism post 
conversion. We're going to talk about that in a second. Very important distinction, okay? So let's look at um, what the book of Acts tells us about the early church. I need to finish this, though. Baptizing them in the what? Okay, this is a fascinating detail. Okay, look at this. In the name, is that plural or singular? Of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Singular name, three persons, one being. You see? It's like even the Trinity is even in that. That's why I baptize people in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Okay? One name, three people. Three persons within the Trinity. So uh, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, the Holy Spirit. Isn't there more? Teaching them to observe all that I can. Are we allowed to cut, slice, and dice and just teach parts that we like? No. Okay. We teach all the counsel of God. The whole count. It's very important to teach all that we've been uh, that we've been um, instructed to teach, and the promise there. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end. Of the age, and I've mentioned this many times, but the reason that that is so important is Matthew starts his book out by describing Jesus as Emmanuel, which means what? God with us. And how does he end his book? Jesus says, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. It's a very important book ends to this, describing again the deity of Christ, just even in his name. So we have baptism here, Acts 2.41. I got several verses here now. Okay, Kim? And those who gladly received him were baptized. Okay, so it says that the following verses tell about various men who preached the gospel during this time. When God's word was preached, what's the result? What, what she says, what happened when God's word was preached? 3,000 souls were saved. And then... And then baptized, right? I heard that right. Doesn't it say they were baptized? Yeah. Okay, how about Acts 8.12? So when they believed Philip and he preached the same concerning the kingdom of God and the Lord Jesus Christ, both men and women were baptized. Okay. So who's preaching? Philip. Philip. And what did they, how did they respond? They believed. They were saved. And then they were baptized. Okay, believing leads to their salvation. I don't want to get this confused. They, were, they believed. They responded to the message. They believed it. They were saved because of their faith in Christ. Christ, you know, they saved by Christ. And then they were baptized as a result. Keep going. Acts 8, 36 through 38. What's the order you notice there? The word of God first. The word of God first. He says, who will explain this? I don't know if it was in your text, but he's reading Isaiah the scroll, and he says, who will explain this to me? The Ethiopian eunuch calls Philip. He says, I need, I need, how can I understand this unless somebody explains it? And Philip explains it to him. Then he says, then he believes, and then what happens? He's baptized, right? So scripture, preaching, Faith, salvation, baptism. That's the pattern. We have another one here, Acts 18, 8. Yes, sir. Then Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed on the Lord with all his household, and many of the Corinthians, hearing, believed and were baptized. What, what's the order here? Hearing. Hearing what? The word. Believing. And then? Baptism, every single time. Word, I really should put the word here. This is very important, right? The word, then faith, then baptism. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. So the word is presented and heard, faith on the part of those who hear it, and then they act in baptism. Acts 19, 4 and 5. Thank you. 
So when they heard this, what did they hear? The word. They were baptized. The faith follows the hearing, the believing, every time. Okay? So this is a really important series of events that we have to keep straight because what happens in many churches all around the world is they invert these. Okay? You, you, you baptize people before they're believers. And they call this uh, infant baptism or pedo-baptism. And they bring children, and in dedicating them to the Lord, they baptize them. Well, in fact, they, they don't really necessarily baptize them. They sprinkle them, which I don't think is baptism. That's another, we'll talk about that in a second. But they sprinkle babies as a way of dedication, and they say that they're baptizing them. Well, that child has not yet had an opportunity to hear the word of God nor believe. So why are we baptizing them? Now, I understand that there are some arguments, and I don't agree with those arguments. That's not really the point of this discussion. But it's important for us to understand that that the word of God is clear. Baptism always follows, always follows the faith of the individual. And the reason is, is because baptism is the outward expression of what's happened internally. I cannot see your heart. But baptism is the outward demonstration of what has happened privately. Now, it is a work. It is an act. It is an act of obedience. It is not a saving act because it is therefore an act. Faith saves Faith in Christ saves, right? Christ saves through faith. We'll put it that way. That sounds a little better. Christ saves us through faith, not based on our works. And, and baptism is doing a good thing. It's an act of obedience. It's the first act of obedience that we ought to have. But notice that it follows the act, or it follows the work of, of God in us. It follows faith. The word, faith, baptism. Well, any questions about that? I want to make that very clear. I think that's very important because there's lots of disagreements about that in church history, among different church denominations. Some of them actually are divided over this issue. And, and, and to be honest, Baptists are a little, the, the, the holding to a biblical view of baptism is a little bit out of the mainstream when it comes to um, this. A lot of people will baptize babies. It's very common. In fact, a lot of you were baptized as babies or sprinkled as babies, right? Any questions? Am I, just to be clear, I want to make sure we're all clear on this. There's no bad questions if you want to ask. Yeah? So that, that comes from the Word of God in the Bible, right? Correct. Why is there dilemma between Why is there a disagreement? Um, the main disagreements come when people try to, from what I understand, again, if, you, if I say anything incorrect here, you can feel free to correct me. A lot of people I've talked to go to the Old Testament and see the rite of circumcision, and the inducting of a young man into the Jewish nation through circumcision on the eighth day to be analogous to the baptism of the New Testament. Okay, that's what they would argue. The problem is you only circumcise the boys, and that's Israel. We're in the church, and it doesn't, it doesn't tell us. Every time you see the, the only... I've talked to a Lutheran one time about this, and the only place he could point in his entire Bible that showed where he thought there was baptism of children was in Acts chapter 16. And Acts chapter 16 is the Philippian jailer is saved, right? Acts 16.31 says, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and you shall be saved, and your house. And they go, and they're all saved, and his household is saved. And they say, see, babies were saved and, and baptized. I'm like, it doesn't say anything about babies. This guy could have been 65. We don't know. We don't know he had an infant in the house. That's a that is completely, and, and it was funny because the guy I was talking to, he looked at it, and he never, ever thought of that. He assumed that when it said, and their house, it meant that there were babies there. It never occurred to him that there, that, 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 that did not, because his, his pastor had taught that that was, that was and, and the honest truth is that it's more tradition. There's based in tradition versus um biblical pattern. The other side is that some people will teach that baptism removes uh, some sort of uh, guilt of sin uh, that is from Adam. We don't teach that either. Okay. So that's kind of, those are some of the arguments I've heard. You may have more. Does that kind of help a little bit understand? Like, I don't think they're necessarily always malicious in those thoughts, but we don't believe that, and I, I'll preach and I'll stand on that. I don't, I don't apologize for that. That's our stance, yeah. Okay. Let's keep going, because it says in Romans 6, 3, and 4, who's got it? Romans 6, 3, and 4. I think I handed that one out. Oh, go. 
Very good. Know you not that so many of us as were baptized into Jesus Christ were baptized into his death? Therefore, just as... Oh, man, my memory's wrong. Uh, just as he raised from the dead by the glory... No, I'm skipping a whole thing. Just as we have buried with him by baptism into death... Raised... Something like that. <laughs> the analogy... I should just turn there. Man, I used to have this memorized. It's, it's just escaping me in the moment. Um... Romans 6, I can turn there. In Romans chapter 6, in verses 3 and 4, he says, um, Therefore we were buried with him through baptism into death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. We were buried with him by baptism into death. Baptism is picturing something. It's not just getting wet. It is actually a picture of something bigger. And what is the picture of? The burial and the resurrection of Christ, which is, again, not to get too picky, but why we do this submersion, why we immerse in baptism is is a picture of going under, being completely enveloped by water, and coming out. Okay? It It is the picture of Christ being dead and then coming out of the tomb. Just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we also should walk in newness of life. That's the picture of the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. So, again, these are very important things to talk about baptism. It always is a great conversation starter. In fact, I think that, or not starter, but um, a point of conversation among people, because I think that baptism, because it is visible, it creates a lot of questions. In fact, it's a great testimony. If, you, if you're getting baptized or you, you, someone's getting baptized, I always tell them, invite your friends, invite your neighbors, invite your relatives, because you want to see the picture of what's happening when you're saved. When you're saved, your old man has passed away, the new man has come. You know? Okay. The second, uh, uh, okay, any more questions about baptism? We could, we could really talk more about this, I'm sure, but I don't want to belabor the point. But any, any additional questions about what baptism means? what it's uh, signifying. Yes, sir. Yeah, so it appears, so their baptism did not originate, I'll put it this way, with, with, with the um, Christian church. You see it with John the Baptist, who was a Jew prophet, baptizing, as it says, a baptism of repentance. And there was some sort, there was a repentance baptism going on. Apparently, people, when they wanted to change, they wanted to put off old works and put on works of repentance, they would go to John and they would do that, which was so unique because when Jesus went to be baptized by John, what did John say? He said, I don't deserve to. Why are you coming to be baptized by me? Like, you don't need to repent of anything. But Jesus says that all righteousness might be fulfilled, and he goes down into the water. Another reason that we. Uh, do immersion, you know, in, it's always in the water. There's always water involved. The word baptize, in fact, quick, quick lesson. Where do we get our word baptize? Baptizo. Yeah, there you go. There's a Greek word. The Greek word for baptize is baptizo, which is really a, um, uh, so when the translators were baptized, were, were uh, using, trying to translate the word baptize, the word baptize really means to, to immerse or to, to envelop. It means to surround, okay? And, and, and so, like a ship, when it would sink, would be called, uh, used that, uh, a cognate of that word. So when they came to that word, um, the, the writer, the, the translators had a choice to make. They, 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 could, they could take a Greek word and just anglicize it, and therefore avoid any controversy. Or they could translate it. And so what did they do? They transliterated it. They just brought it into English. People do this all the time. You know, we have... French words that are English words. We have, and other languages have English words, and you know that happens, and that's happened in 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 our Bible where people use the word baptize. It's a Greek word just brought over into English letters. Okay, so it's a term, but it means to envelop or surround. Now let's go on to the Lord's Supper. Okay, so we have verses here: uh, Matthew twenty six twenty six through twenty eight. Okay, so Matthew 26, 26 through 28 teaches us 
that the Lord's Supper represents two things. What does it represent? Yeah, it represents his body and his blood. We have the body of Christ and the blood of Christ represented when Jesus did the Lord's Supper. Take and eat, this is my body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And now if we look at 1 Corinthians 11, in fact, why don't we all turn there, 1 Corinthians chapter 11. We're going to look at verse 23 through 26. Did I hand that out to anybody? I don't think I did. It's a longer one. I think I skipped this one. Okay, in verse 23, he says, For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the same night in which he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, Take, eat, this is my body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same manner, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you drink, as you eat this bread and drink this cup, what are you doing? You proclaim. You're preaching the Lord's death till he comes. So why are we doing this? As often as you eat this or drink this, what are we, why are we doing this? What's the purpose? To remember, it says it right here, you can hardly see it, but it says, in remembrance of me. To remember him. Okay, this is important. When you remember, um, it's like a mon, I, I, you know, it's like building a monument uh, when someone dies and you bury them and you leave a headstone there. It's a monument to their life. You go and you look at that monument and you remember them. You think about them. You have feelings about them when you're staring at a piece of stone because that stone represents, it isn't them, but it represents them and is a monument to remember them. It calls you to remember them and it tells about them. You've been to stones and it says this person's name, birth date, their death date, and maybe like husband, father, you know, whatever their accomplishments were that they are really proud of. And sometimes there will be a Bible or cross or if they're a Jew, maybe a Star of David they're different symbols that tell us. And notice what he's saying here. In the Lord's table, at the Lord's Supper, the purpose of doing this is remembrance. It's not atonement. Now, you know what atonement means? What's the word atonement mean? Anybody have an idea? Good. Yeah, that's, that's a perfect. In fact, um, the word in, in Hebrew is the word kafar. Uh, and it means, uh, it means to cover. And we use like Yom Kippur, Day of Atonement. You're familiar with Yom Kippur? That's the Day of Atonement. And we see atonement in the covering of sin, the atoning for. And we talk about the atonement, Christ's atoning work on the cross. He covered our sin but what he did. But he did that on the cross. He does not do that in the supper. This do in remembrance of me, as often as you eat this bread, drink this cup, you proclaim. You don't atone for your... This is not atoning work going on. It is proclaiming work going on. This is so important. What's happening at the Lord's Supper is preaching in symbolism. It's not that your sins are being covered again and again. So some churches will teach you that as actually... This is some confusion they have over the reading of the Bible. They don't understand the idea of preaching and remembering, and they think it has to do with actually like, re-sacrificing Jesus every single time. And that by re-sacrificing Christ, that, that Christ is like constantly being sacrificed and constantly atoning for our sins. Uh, that's why a Catholic church will have an altar, because what happens at an altar is a sacrifice. Okay, they, they, and the, the priest and his and his mind is taking that bread and is and is through an act of a prayer is actually transforming that prayer. It's called transubstantiation. We do not believe this, but the Catholic Church teaches something called transubstantiation, whereby the body of Christ is actually becoming that bread. That bread is becoming the body of Christ. So when you ingest that bread, you're actually ingesting the actual body of Christ. 
It no longer is an act of remembrance, now is an act of almost atonement, re-sacrificing Christ. But we know from the Scripture that Christ died once for all. Can I get an amen? Amen, Amen, right? So there is no need for a constant dying of Christ. Christ died once for all. When we uh, take of the supper, we are thinking about, we are remembering, we are proclaiming the Lord's death till he comes every time we celebrate uh, the Lord's Supper, we are celebrating Jesus' death. Now, if we um, keep going, verse 27, there's a warning about the Lord's Supper. Therefore, whoever eats of this bread or drinks of this cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself and said, let him eat of the, blood, uh, eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks in an unworthy manner eats and drinks judgment to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. For this reason, many are weak and sick among you, and many sleep. What warning do we have about the Lord's Supper? You you do not do this lightly. It's very serious. You'll notice that when we do the Lord's Supper here, we always take it very seriously. We don't goof off. We're not doing a clown show with the Lord's Supper. We don't use Pepsi, right? We use grape juice, which is of the vine. We're, we take things seriously. I, I had a friend one time who um, was actually one of my professors who was talking about this, one of my uh, seminary professors, and he was confessing. He said when, we were, when he was younger, he and his friends, he was like, it was so foolish. He said, I don't know what we were thinking, but we got together, and we, we had the Lord's Supper in one of our dorm rooms, and we had Pepsi and, and saltine crackers, and we thought, you know, that's what we did. And we weren't trying to be disrespectful. He's like, but looking back on it, that was terribly disrespectful. And, and so we, we want to take it seriously. That's, it's one of the ordinances given to the local church that we participate in here that we, you know, we take, that's why we ask a lot of times, children, go sit with your parents. We don't want kids to be laughing and goofing off during this time and not realizing the seriousness of this. We also, uh, at Harvest, we ask that you be a baptized believer in order to participate in the Lord's Supper and that your um, walk with God is clear. Now, why would we ask you to be baptized? It's an act of obedience, and if you aren't yet baptized, you're probably not obedient. You're not walking in that first step of obedience to God. If you're saved and not yet baptized, you need to do that first. It's an act of obedience, okay? Um, We also don't require you to be a member here at Harvest because we believe that's something that's a decision between you and God. Now, all these things I'm talking about here are not things you would necessarily go over with somebody you're doing a Bible study with, as in, like, did you know the Catholic Church believes this? But it's good to know, because if you're dealing with someone who has a church background, they might have these ideas that you need to talk about and show them through the lens of Scripture uh, what the Bible says. Yeah, any questions about Lord's Supper? Yes, sir. Yeah, I, I think it's brought on purpose. I, I don't know if there is a, there's not a specific sin that is the unworthy sin. So, like, if you're committing all these other sins, um, but as long as you don't do this one, you can still do the Lord's Supper. I, I think, personally, I think it's vague on purpose, that he's saying if you, you know what it is to take it unworthily. You need to examine your hearts before you take it to the Lord's Supper so that when you take it to the Lord's Supper, if there's any unconfessed sin, it gets confessed here and now, right? It gets confessed right, right now, before God, before you do anything. Um, so I, I, I think it definitely could, if you have an unreconciled issue with somebody, like if you have a problem with someone else and you're bickering and you're fighting, that counts as something you need to deal with. Um, I think it's great. It's a great reminder. We do it here about every six weeks, which is, you know, fine. We don't want to do it every, all the time so that it gets to be road. It gets to become a pattern that you just kind of stop thinking about it. Uh, I think it's a good evaluation to have in your heart where you sit down and you, you conf- you're confronted with your sin. You're confronted with the death of Christ. You're caused to think on and remember the death and the sacrifice of Jesus Christ at that moment. And um, I don't know if I really answered your question other than to say I think it's intentionally vague so that there's not a specific sin that counts as unworthy. Now you're unworthy. Where previously, if you'd done all these other sins, uh, you can still take the Lord's Supper. Does that, that kind of answer the question? Sort of. Any other questions? 
so a lot of people believe that, and I think this is probably true, the early church, if you read the, the, the epistles, it appears that the early church probably celebrated the Lord's Supper kind of like we celebrate a dinner on the grounds, and that it was called, a, they called it a love feast, and they would have these um, times when they, and they had the, the, you know, the food, the bread, and the drink, but the problem was that people were coming hungry to the love feast, and they were gorging themselves on food and not thinking on spiritual matters. So he's, he's, that's why Paul says, if you're hungry, eat at home. Have you ever wondered why we give you such small juice cups? That, that is part of the reason, is because of the tradition uh, among churches is that you don't, the Lord's Supper is a very small amount. It's, it's the smallest possible amount because the tendency, uh, because of what Paul says here, it's not to feed your hunger. It's not, you're not coming to the Lord's Supper in order to get a meal. You're coming to think on Christ, and we don't want anything to be a distraction, so the drink is this big. Now, uh, we don't have the communal cup here. <laughs> we, uh, we got to experience, my wife and I got to experience that at Clay Gibbons Church up in England. There was a row of about 14 of us or so in a semicircle, and they had a teaching time on Sunday night, and then they had the Lord's table, and he warned us. And he said, what you want, he, he gave us the seats. Oh, but, but, he, but what he did was, is he, he, he did tell us, he said, you, you just, no, he did tell me, he told me we're, Correct. He told us, he said, you want to sit right here? And he told us there would be a communal cup. He told me there would be. But he said, you got to sit right here. And I didn't know why. But the reason was, it was be, we'd be the first ones, you know. So we wouldn't have to, uh, to go, you know, be the last of this crew. But wouldn't you know it, the pastor uh, who Clay works with, who's, who's doing this, sees us and he stops. And he thinks, these Americans don't know what they're going to do. So you know what he does? He, he starts at the other end of the line. And we got the very last drink. So how's that? We had a good time with that. Uh, yes, ma'am. Yeah, I mean, it's done. It is done. Um, we, we don't do it here. There is no um, requirement for that in Scripture. There's no re- we use, um, a lot of people ask, why don't you use wine? Um, why do you use grape juice? Well, ju- uh, grape juice is... Um, uh, of the vine, it is, uh, alcohol is such a problem in today's culture um, that it is, it is something that we're going to avoid using in worship context. It would be a huge stumbling block for some people, uh, for a lot of people um, who, and, and I think we live in a world today where we can have these kinds of things. They didn't have grape juice like this. There wasn't a process for keeping grape juice as, as um, uh, preserved today as it was back then. They didn't have that. And I think if they would have, they would have been careful. Then they, they were careful. We find all kinds, and that's another whole discussion, but, but we do use grape juice instead of, we, but we use gr- juice of the, vi- uh, of the vine. We use as be- close as we can. We don't want to be an, uh, a stumbling block to people. Yes, sir. Right. Yeah, sim- similarly how baptism is, is um, perverted, this can be seen as a, um, a, by some churches, as a meritorious act. And the way, reason I say it that way is it merits you favor with God. That's what they might believe. That by doing this, you are gaining God's grace. Now, that is not the purpose of the Lord's Supper. What does it say the purpose is? to proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. And so we remember him. Do this in remembrance of me. It is a remembering time. It is a proclaiming time. It is not a time where we receive grace or favor from God for doing this. Right? So it's important we keep our... our men have an amazing ability to just twist everything God gives us. And so we have to constantly go back to the Word and say, what does God's Word say? How can we be faithful to what God's Word has called us to do? What other questions do you have about that? People sometimes ask, well, why do we only do it every six weeks? I kind of mentioned that already, but we try to do it often enough, so it's a good checkup. Uh, We will do it next week, next Sunday morning. Uh, We do it once a year during the Sunday morning service. We typically do it on a Sunday night because there's typically uh, more home folks here. We can do more explaining. We can spend a little more time talking about it. And um, we don't ever want to put someone in a situation where they're guests. We have a lot of guests on Sunday morning. And we don't want to put someone in a situation where they, they feel like they don't know what they're supposed to do or they partake when they're not, they shouldn't. Um, and so that's partially why we do it mostly on Sunday nights. But we will do it next week on Sunday morning.
and I'll spend a little bit of time talking about that. Any, any other, anything else? Let's get, let's get as we can into lesson eight, which is on um, uh, talking to unbelievers or evangelizing. Um, you know, a lot of people think that their faith is a personal thing. You really don't have to talk about it with other people. Why do I have to, to, to share the good news of Christ with people? But, but the amazing thing is that God has actually chosen you as his means by which he will spread the gospel message. He has chosen us. We are his vessels of of the message of the gospel, the good news. That's what the gospel means. So 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 20. Yes, sir, Kyle. Oh. Thank you, Kyle. I appreciate that. I actually had given that to Clayton, so I'm going to let Clayton read that nice and loud again so everybody can hear it. Thank you, sir. Clayton, can you read it too? No, you're fine. Go ahead. Awesome. So in this verse, the Apostle Paul explains that if you're saved by Christ, you have a new job to do. What is your new job? You are an ambassador for Christ. And then he explains what that means. As though Christ were pleading through us, what is our message? I am called to implore you to do what? Be reconciled to God. So there is a problem. What is the problem? The problem is that people are separated from God. This is the big problem people have. We have people, or we have man, and then we have God. And there is a separation between man and God. And we need a way for people to be reunited with God, and we need an ambassador, someone who goes on behalf. Now, I just always stop and I ask when I'm doing this, I say, what's an ambassador? What does an ambassador do? Represents, represents another, and what? What? So, if we have an ambassador to, uh, I don't know, let's pick a nation, ambassador to Canada. Boy, that's a hard job. So he goes up to Canada, and he's an ambassador to the United, from the United States to Canada. What's his job? What does he do to the Canadians? What does he talk? He takes a message from, from the United States, from the president of the United States. He goes on behalf of the United States. What happens? Um, as he goes and he speaks the message given to him, it does not matter his personal identity. It does not matter what he li- if he likes the message, if he doesn't like the message. It doesn't matter his personal feelings. When he speaks, he speaks giving the message that comes through him. He is a conduit. He is just there to carry that message on. Okay, so that's what he says here. That's our position. We are called to implore others to be reconciled to God. It's like God is pleading through me. I can effectively say God wants you to do this because God's word is telling me that I should tell someone else. So it says your ambassador is a representative or a messenger to another country. He has, his responsibility is not to accomplish his own agenda, but to do the will of the one who has sent him. So what does it mean to be reconciled? What does it mean to be reconciled? be brought back into a right relationship, right? And in mankind, we are separated from God because of sin. When did that separation occur? In the garden, right? So in the garden of Eden, we have the separation of man. Uh, We have the disobedience to God. We have the separation. And because of this, God is working to reconcile us together. And the only way we can be reconciled is through I don't know, working really hard, going to church, being baptized, giving lots of money, and loving people, right? No! That's right. Thank you. I was hoping to make sure y'all were y'all were away. The only way we can be reconciled is through Jesus Christ. Um, there, there's a great track out there called the Bridge Track, and I, I, have some, I don't use it all the time. I, I have some qual- minor qualms with using it uh, as, a, as your only way of, of is there's a couple of flaws in the analogy, but I do like it sometimes, and I'll use it like this, when I'm using this um, analogy of, of reconciliation and being restored. I'll say there's like a big gulf between people, between you, and sometimes you can write their name, and God. 
And what happens is, is you are, or other people, and you are calling, you're standing back, you're calling them to be reconciled to God. But they can't, they can't be reconciled themselves. They can't reconcile themselves to God. They need to go through Christ. And you can draw a cross if you, if you like to do this kind of thing. You know, it's, it's the cross is the reconciler so that people can once again be reconciled to God. He stretches the gap so they can cross the chasm. And once again, that relationship can be restored. So the gospel is very important that we know it well. We'll wrap it up in just a second. Where can you find a good definition of the gospel? What verse? Where would you turn? 1 Corinthians 15, 3 and 4, right? Christ died for our sins, according to the scripture. He was buried and rose again on the third day, according to the scripture. The according to the scripture is very important. That, that what Christ did was not just an, uh, an event that happened in the time of the world at some point. It's that it was a part of God's plan, and it was predicted in the Old Testament, fulfilled in the New. So Christ died for our sins. Not just that he died. Died for us. Was buried, and he rose again. Okay. We are almost out of time. I'll take a couple questions. Anybody have any questions about... Let me give you a couple things, and then we'll, and then maybe this will provoke a question or two, then we'll wrap it up. How do you start a conversation to witness to somebody? Lots of different ways, lots of different tactics. People have all kinds of things you do. One of the, one of the best questions that, um, uh, that has been told to me, I've used before many times, is, hey, do you have any spiritual interests? Do you have any spiritual interests? It opens the door, it's not offensive, and they can tell you, and it's open-ended, Okay. That is a good way to start a conversation. A bad way to start the conversation is to, is to pin them down into a corner. You want to give an opening discussion. Anybody else have any idea, any other questions that you like to ask that kind of get people thinking along the spiritual? Yes, ma'am. Oh, yeah. Would you like to hear the good news and the bad news? That's good. People are curious. Which one do you want to hear first, <laughs> right? May even want to ask them a question. We use a little heaven quiz track. I love that thing. I give it out all the time. And I often will, pray, will say, hey, have you ever taken the heaven quiz? And they always take it. They always pick it up. No, never. Sometimes, no, the people who go to, people at Zaxby's and the people at Shane's have seen it. Uh, so it's hard, it's hard to say, you know, they're like, oh, yeah, <laughs> I have seen that. And sometimes they'll say, yeah, I failed it, you know, or whatever. But if you hand it, if they've never seen it before, they'll say, huh, no, I haven't seen that. And I'll say, well, why don't you take the heaven quiz or, or you know, see how you do. And, and they, they pick it up. And what's the first thing you do when you get a piece of literature? What do you do if it's folded? What do you start to do? You start to open it, right? Oh, it's just it's like natural. So every person who I give it to, almost every person does that. So here's what I do. And you're free to do this as well. As I say, oh, whoa, whoa, no cheating. It's a quiz. You can't cheat. What are you doing? There's answers on the inside. And it always breaks the ice. I know it's kind of corny, but it breaks the ice. So then they laugh, and I laugh, and I say, no, seriously, though, you take, take a look at it and, and commit to some answers, and then see what the Bible says. See if your answers match up. And, and, and I've had people come back to me. I give it to a waitress or something. They come back to me like, I, how'd you do? Oh, I failed. I really thought, I really thought I knew this. I talked to a guy, uh, Chris Sniffen. Where are you? Chris, I just saw you. I talked to your friend in the hospital. I went and gave him one came back the, uh, the very next day, and he said, you know, I really thought I knew these answers. I opened it up, and I failed both of them. Gives you an opportunity. What was great about it is it makes people commit to an answer instead of just kind of telling you what you want to hear. That's not the only way, but I like to ask, hey, do you have any spiritual, spiritual um, interests? Very broad question, and they'll say, yeah, you know, I played Dungeons and Dragons, or I'm into the New Age, or I, you know, I, I, I burn incense in my house, you know, or I go to a church. You know, there's all kinds of different ways that can go. Very interesting conversations. Uh, any other opening questions you guys like to use? Yes, sir. That's a really good one. Because um, uh, the question, in case you couldn't hear for those online, is on a scale of 1 to 10, 10 being absolutely sure, 1 being no way, how sure are you that you go to heaven when you die? Or you go to heaven? Yeah, I, I, for some reason, people I talk to almost always say eight. They're like eight. Seven or eight. And, and what they're saying is, 
well, I'm not that bad, but I'm definitely not that good. And I want this person to think that I'm a decent person, but I'm not too proud, because if I put 10, they'll think I'm proud. So I'll say eight. What that shows you is they're basing their salvation on their works. And you say, why? Ask questions. If they say eight, seven, five, why? Well, you know, I've done some bad things, and I've also, but I try really hard. They always, it always goes something like that. And you can then say, well, did you know that no matter how much good stuff you do, they'll never get you to a 10? That's not the way to get to a 10. But the Bible says you can have a 10. And 1 John 5 says, these things I've written to you that you may know that you have eternal life. K-N-O-W, know, that you H-A-V-E, now, have eternal life. Not might know, not should know, not will have, but have. And I think that's a, just a, a great, great question to ask. Yeah, absolutely. Okay? Let me give you a couple more things to think about as you, tr- as you uh, witness to people. Uh, number one is if someone says anything to you, uh, uh, Greg Kukul wrote a fantastic book called Tactics, and I gave it to our deacons a couple years ago. Um, I, think it's, I think that's how you spell his name, and the book is Tactics. But I'm going to save you some money. Uh, if you, you want to buy the book, buy the book. But the whole, the whole point of the book is this. He says you ask these questions when you're witnessing to someone. You ask them, see if I can remember them. Um, what did you mean by that? How did you come to that conclusion? Have you ever considered? Someone says, oh, I'm an atheist. What do you mean by that? Well, I believe there's no God. Well, see, what they say by atheist and what you think they mean by atheist may be two different things. Ask them to define their terms. What do you mean by that? And it gets them to talk. And the more people talk, the more they work themselves into a web of confusion. I've noticed that. If you get to someone next on a plane, you don't have to do much talking. You let them talk. And then by the time they've gotten themselves so confused, you can present the clear plan of salvation, and, and they have worked themselves, and they, under, they finally worked out that they are confused. They think they know it. But if you ever started talking about something and realized while you're talking, you don't know what you're talking about? I have. I've started talking about things with people, and then while I'm talking about it, I'm, I'm thinking to myself, I am really not learned at all in this topic. Like, I am completely over my head. And if you talk, about, talk to people about their spiritual life, most people are exactly there. They think they know what they're talking about, but as you talk to them, as you let them talk it out, they have no idea. Let them work themselves into confusion because they don't know what they're talking about. Most people. Some people will. What do you mean by that? And then, um, how did you come to that conclusion? That shows you why they are. In fact, um, uh, I had this exact same talk, conversation when I was a freshman at Clemson with uh, one of my roommates. Uh, he said, uh, I didn't know these three questions at the time, but he said, I'm an atheist. I said, what, is that? what do you mean? He said, well, I, I just don't believe there's a God. I said, what, why did you come to that conclusion? Or why, did you, why, why are you an atheist? He's Japanese, uh, boy. And he said, um, well, I always thought I was a Christian. I used to wear a cross around my neck, and I just assumed I was a Christian because I was American. My parents are first-generation immigrants from Japan, and I wanted to be American, and what Americans are is Christian. He said, but then I was in class one day, and I was reading an assignment out loud, and I came to the word Bible, and I said, Bibble. I didn't know what the word Bible was. And my classmates laughed at me, and they said, you're, a, you're not a Christian. You don't even know what a Bible is. He said, and I realized, yeah, I'm not a Christian. I might as well just be an atheist. Okay, that's not rational at all. He's not thinking straight. He made a completely emotional decision out of embarrassment. He thought it'd be easier to just be a hard-nosed atheist than to try to humble himself and say, oh, well, what is, you know, to explore that. Some people, a lot of people you'll talk to if they're atheists or agnostics will say, um, I lost my dad when I was a young man. I lost my mom in a car wreck. I had a best friend die, I'm a drunk driver. And how can God let that happen? So you just open a door to their heart. And maybe they're really angry at the God they know exists instead of really denying that, you know. So, so I, I encourage you. And then the last question is, have you ever considered, that's just your opening to explain the truth. Have you ever considered that God takes horrible things that happen and uses them for his glory? And perhaps the whole reason that God sent you on this journey so we could have this conversation right now. And maybe we could open up God's word and you could hear this message. I, I, you know, I've had a con- I remember having a conversation one time on a train with somebody one day, and we had this similar conversation. Have you ever considered? I was on a train, and it was actually in New York City. We were having this conversation, 
that God put you here and God put us here so we could open this Bible and show what God's word has to say about eternal life. And, and it forces them to answer that question. Yeah, that's really interesting. No, I haven't considered that. Maybe it's true. So some things to think about. We'll finish the rest of this um, probably in a couple weeks because Clay is preaching next week. But um, I want to challenge you to take a commitment this week, and I'll take it with you, that when God opens a door, you will open your mouth. You don't have to say much. Maybe just that one phrase. Hey, do you have any spiritual interests? Hey, on a scale of 1 to 10, hey, would you like to hear the good news or the bad news? Commit to God today that this week, by next Sunday, by next week, you would have witness to one person. I'm not saying you have to convert that person and they have to be in church getting baptized next week. I just want you to work on trying to share the gospel with somebody next week. If you, know the, if you have your testimony, you know the gospel message. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. He saved me. Faith alone and Christ alone, I have redemption. It's not based on anything I can do. It would be great. Wouldn't it be great if we had, well, there are probably 150 people here tonight or so, 150 interactions in our community for the gospel? It would be great. So let's pray and ask God to commit, we'll commit ourselves to him today and we'll ask for God to open up doors because I'm, I'm a firm believer that when we ask God to do things, especially when it's in his will like this, he does it. So be on the lookout this week for God to do that. Father, we ask your blessings on the remainder of our evening. We thank you for this time we've had before you. And as we now commit ourselves, Father, I pray that every person under the sound of my voice would be willing to make this commitment today that when you open that door this week, we will open our mouths. We will, with boldness, speak the truth without fear, knowing that your spirit is there with us in that moment and your work is already begun. And so, Lord, may we be a part of what you're doing where the word can be spoken, the word can be said, and we can be on board. We can be doing what you call us to do. And Lord, I pray you'd bring someone along, every single person, even the children, that they would have friends in their neighborhood they could talk to at school, on their teams, with their friends, that they could open their mouth and present the word of God. That we at work or with our people at the grocery store, wherever we are, God, I pray a door would just open wide up. We could see the opportunity and we would take it. Bless this night, Lord. Thank you so much for your word in Jesus' name. Amen.